this is Dr. Jose Saldivar with another episode of the Way to College podcast. And if you were joining us, if you listened to last week's episode, you heard the first part of um, of Ediael Casaperalta's story. And so this week, this week we continue because she just had so much to share, so much she thought, so much of her life that she wanted to share with others. Um, given her experiences and how important it was, she felt like to share some of those experiences for students who were first-generation students, for students who are looking for some direction and for advice as they go along their journey. So, where do we want to? What do we want to take off? Where do we want to? What do we want to broach first? Well, first, thanks for having me again, Jay. It's really fun, and and I'm sorry that we don't have guiding questions because it's going to go everywhere again. <laughs> I, I, I like that. You know, I um, I don't know who, um, where I saw it. Somebody said that that when they do interviews, oh, it was a, it was actually another faculty member, um, at the university, and she said she has her students go out and do like community surveys and interviews, and she's an anthropologist by training, and I thought, you know, I think that's where I, you know, the way I interview comes from is. Because Frank, you know, being going with Frank on the Llano Grande, when we would do interviews, there were rarely guiding questions. Frank would often just do one question and then go from there. And my advisor in college, he was this uh, wonderful man. Uh, his name was Ray McDermott. And Ray always used to tell me, because Ray was an anthropologist, and he would always tell me, when you're doing interviews, just start with the grand tour question. So it's a question that's broad enough that it might take you in any kind of direction, but but it's going to give you, it's going to lead you somewhere. And um, for these interviews, I don't, I find that if I try and 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 um, script questions, sometimes you feel like, okay, I'm limited to these. Yeah. And I'd much rather just kind of, let's just see where the conversation takes us. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally, you know, um, agree and appreciate what you're saying. Um it's, it just takes a while for me to organize my thoughts. So I'm like, <laughs> focus on the question that was asked. Well, um, you know, before we got started, before, mm-hmm. you know, we hit record, we were having a really interesting conversation about you having to work harder than your classmates. And, yes. and you talked about that. And, and so let me ask you, I want yeah. to talk a little bit. Was that the case? Because you, you, you cited specifically law school. But was that the case as an undergrad? Was that the case in when you were working on your master's? I mean, was that was that always the case? Yeah, I think and I am I'm glad that we're starting off here, right? Because now we're getting into what it's like to be a first generation uh, poor student at at a college, right? Where you don't have uh, the same financial resources that a lot of your classmates have, especially if you are in really elite uh, institutions. And um, so what, you know, we're talking about just what adulthood feels like, which is like, oh, yeah, I've been doing this for a while, just running this like nonstop race, uh, you know, from deadline to deadline. And, um, you know, from figuring out, okay, now that I've applied, what are, what are the next like list of documents that I have to align? And Uh then what are my, um, you know, what are my class requirements and, and then what are the scholarship deadlines I should keep track of? So it constantly felt um, that I had to keep track of so many different strands of work that, um, that I didn't see every classmate keep track of, right? Um, so, you know, and, and I don't want to make it sound like I was working harder than my classmates because I could have been working better. Yeah. And that was a challenge in itself, right? I remember thinking I don't, um, not really realizing that you were supposed to read ahead of class because in high school, we got in, we engaged with the material in class. And so it was, it was a shift, right? But one of those, you know, one of those skills that I think took a long time to learn and is still so challenging to master when you have less resources is just time management, Mm -hmm. management for all of the different um, responsibilities that you face. So, if you 
have been fortunate enough to have your school paid by a you know a scholarship or um, you got a full ride from the school or your family's taking care of that then you don't have to figure out how do I put together the money that will keep me here semester from semester to semester right but if if you don't have that, then you are then likely looking for scholarships nonstop. So that was one of the responsibilities that I saw myself continuously look for mm-hmm. to be able to pay for school. And a scholarship application means, a, uh, you know, some sort of personal statement, uh, some sort of like two to three um, letters of recommendation from your professors, filling out the form, getting it in on time. And so that just becomes a whole other project that you're tracking alongside all of the papers that you have. Um, If you don't have, again, the same resources as, as other students, you're probably also working one to two, maybe even three part-time jobs to try to make ends meet. Right. So I also worked uh, the whole time that I could work um, in throughout throughout undergrad, graduate school and law school, um, because I had to figure out how to, you know, pay for my toothpaste. <laughs> Literally, I just had to pay for my toothpaste yeah. and and forget even like the. You know, I, I didn't have like an extravagant, you know, or not extravagant, but like a party mode because that meant money. I couldn't afford to party. So I didn't party. I was a really boring kind of like <laughs> college student, right? I didn't really party in college. It was just too expensive. Yeah. So um, so all of those things. And, and one of the ways, for example, that that lack of resources um, impacted not only obviously right you have less time to devote to studying um, and it's challenging if you like myself didn't have um, didn't understand exactly what was required of you to perform well in, in college um, but another way that I saw that impacting my undergrad education is for example during my um, during the summers I worried about getting a job that would allow me to pay for books. I was just worried about this super expensive books that colleges require typically. Mm -hmm. And so I got jobs wherever I could. You know, there were summers where I worked at a really tasty Mexican restaurant and I was a waitress and that's what I did. I mean, but whatever it was that would help me pay for my books, that's what I did. Meanwhile, there were other students that were doing internships, were doing research, um, you know, opportunities with their professors, were figuring out ways that would advance, that would expose them to different careers and then also help them develop their resume. So I remember towards the end of college when I went to our, uh, back then, our office of like career advancement or something like that, And I really wanted to go to grad school. And the advisor at the time, um, you know, I I wanted to go to grad school to do research. And so the advisor at the time said, well, you don't have any research, uh, like work on your resume. You don't have any internships. You you haven't done anything like that. And I was like, no, yeah, I had to work during the summer. But Mm -hmm. during the school year, I I took as many classes where I could write research papers. And that's the exposure I've had. And she was really terrible. I mean, she told me some really ridiculous uh, anecdotes of like why that was bad. And it was a horrible, horrible experience. Right. But her whole underpinning was, well, you haven't done any research, so there's no possible way you could ever or you should ever apply to grad school. You're you just don't know. And she ended up saying you just don't know what you want, because if you knew what you wanted, you would have done research before. And I was like, did you, sorry. (laughs) And I was just going to say, right. So you, you, we, again, I love, I, you know, one of the the reasons for the podcast was, I think it's important that we share our stories. I think all of our stories are different, but they're incredibly rich. And your story, I think you talked about like working harder than your class or not working harder. There were more things that you had to consider and that you had to balance, right, and manage than maybe some of your classmates. And there is a lot of information out there 
uh, a lot of what, whether we call it the hidden curriculum, right? The unwritten syllabus, that insider information, right? But that there's information that our first-gen students don't have access to. And unless you've been through the process or have a mentor that's telling you about it, you don't know. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that's important that you share that because, right. because I think a lot of times we send kids out into the world and we send them out to college. And, and, and if mom and dad, or if we don't have any family members that have that experience, then we do our best and we give them, you know, our blessing and our love and our support, but all of that information that we, we don't, we don't know, we're not privy to. Absolutely. And it, it absolutely, I think, uh, colors how people see you, mm. right? It, it gives them uh, it, what you know and what you don't know and what you're able to access and what you're not able to access. People take as information about your ability, your uh, drive and um, your commitment to something, right? And so I, I think that's one of the um, most important things is that people need to, uh, that um, I think one of the most important things I, I wanna share in your, in your podcast is that there is no special talent that people have innately that makes them a better student or a more driven individual in a higher education than someone else. I really, really fully believe that. I don't think that excellent students are born. I think we are made, right? So when you have... Um, a student that has had all sorts of information and resources available to them, they're going to perform better in some situations, right? But it doesn't mean that there's something innate to who they are uh, in, in terms of like how they perform. I think that a lot of incredible talent and intelligence and drive is, is, um, present in every single community, in every single school. But what a lot of us didn't have or don't have right now is the access to that information mm -hmm. and the support to be able to um, guide our experiences in a more beneficial way, right? So I, I think um, what I want your audience to know is that what, what you don't know, you can't know. <laughs> you can't know until someone shows you, hey, this is how things work. Yeah. And, and, I, um, and I think that the more you learn and the more you understand resources, the more you, you can succeed in, this, in, a, in a higher education world, right? And the reality is that that pure talent and that pure grit has totally propelled so many students forward. But I mean, our abilities and our uh, capabilities are just, you know, they're, they're just all there uh, yeah. waiting for resources. So I'm not sure if that came out very clearly, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I think, I think back often to that moment when that, uh, when that um, college career advisor was pretty brutally comparing me and assessing me on my desire for higher ed or my interest in continuing a research career um, and compare me to other students that had been in her office, right? She said, oh, well, you haven't done research and I couldn't possibly, you're not like a good candidate for graduate school. I couldn't oh, possibly, wow. you know, it, it would be bad for me to like try to guide you to schools. And she actually, Jay, so I was really interested at UCLA and going to graduate school at UCLA. 
and she called in my presence. She called someone at UCLA graduate studies. Maybe she didn't, but she told me, I'm going to call my friend there now and called someone and was like, hey, I have a student here, has zero research experience. They're really interested in your program. What do you think? Should they apply? No. Yeah, I thought so. They shouldn't apply. She's like, see, you shouldn't apply. I just called graduate studies. Wow. Really. <laughs> and, and you're just not ready. So why burn a bridge now? Wow. I mean, it was brutal. <laughs> that's that's so demoralizing. It was like to, to do it I in front totally of you. Demoralized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and and what was sad, right, is that her whole assumption was, well, you didn't spend your summers doing research. So are you serious about research? And I told her, well, like I had to work to pay for my books. Yeah. She's like, yeah, but where's your research desire, right? So it was, it was uh, very interesting um, and, and eye-opening to have that experience because I knew that there, there were people that were going to face not only me, but so many students in that way, right? Like, well, you don't have the, the, you don't meet the expectations of what I think someone like you should be doing at this stage. So it must be because there's no desire or there's no talent there. So why am I wasting my time? Um, so, you know, I think it's, I'm sure that there are uh, a lot of students have had similar experiences, maybe not exactly that one, but yeah. at some point someone told them, you're just not fit for this. Right. And, and that's, a, that's a moment to reflect. Is that what I want? Um, but also to be like, wait, what am I missing here? What mm-hmm. resource do I not have access to that hasn't been presented to me? Um, I also want to share one one other really kind of poignant moment in college, I think related to the resource portion, right? Why I was, I spent my summers trying to work for my books. I remember the very first week of college and we had orientation um, and in orientation, there were a lot of sessions about how to pay for college. And I mean, I had to go to those, right? So I went yeah. to a session on loans because I was like, I don't know. I don't know anything about loans. So I have to go to the session on loans. And most students there at, at Oxy had their parents with them because it was the parent who was going to take on the debt for the loan. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I remember they give you kind of like the documents and go through it with you. And I just remember looking at this document called the promissory note. And I was like, what is this? What is promissory? You know, and having no clue. And in that moment, I think that that uh, probably you see this a lot of your in, in a lot of your audience um, is it's like there's this moment of grit where you're like, OK, I'll figure it out. And I felt like, well, I don't know what a promissory note is, but I gather that if I don't sign this, I can't get a loan to pay for college. So whether I know what it is or not, I have to sign it. And I really felt like I wish I wish I had an adult. <laughs> I wish I had someone explaining to me what this major step in life is, because it feels major because everybody else has their parents here. Yeah. And and I was like, well, I'll figure it out. And so that's how I got into debt the first time. <laughs> so, so Edia, let me let yeah. me ask you something, because in the first interview, I think you talked about. um <laughs> You know, being the oldest in your family, you had to, and you hear this a lot. You hear this a lot about for immigrant students, if they're the oldest, if they're the ones that have the more command of the English language than anybody else in the family, they become the translators, they become right there. And so you talked about that for yourself. And so I I think it's fascinating that you you then have to go on to college you're by yourself you're sitting in these sessions and you're literally you've translating for yourself i'm taking in this information and i've got to figure out now for myself <laughs> and boy that it i imagine it would have been so much easier yeah if you had somebody who knew to translate yeah. for you right i oh i, I when i went away when i went away to school my parents you know, took some time off. They drove me 
and then they went, I remember where they spent the day and, and we went to a session. It didn't keep me from getting in debt, but <laughs> they, they went to the session. And so they understood like, you know, they've taken yeah. out loans before, right? Personal yeah. loans. And things like that. So they knew the process. They were able to right. explain it to me. Right. But for so many students, right? Right. Like, you know, not every, you know, your, your parents imagine couldn't afford to go with you to LA and to be part of that process. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I'm not, um, and of course this is not a, a fault on my parents or my community. Of course this not. This is the reality of what going to college as a first generation low income student is and was right. Um, and absolutely. I really, I, I really felt like, man, I wish my parents were here, but then I thought, well, I don't think they could help me with this. And absolutely, I think the way that you put it is so well phrased. I was trying my best to translate for myself. Mm-hmm. And and I think that is exactly what I think a lot of students do. They try to translate this whole system of higher education for themselves, right? And it's mm-hmm. easier if you have another person guiding you kind of saying, this is what this means. This is what it does. Watch out. I mean, you know, it's one of those reasons that is like, man, I, it, it, it can really get you into trouble if you were to then suddenly say, okay, I'm going to sign up for um, credit cards. Cause that's how I'll pay for this. Um, you know, you can get into a lot of credit card debt. I mean, it is, like I said, I'm, I I was always like a more conservative, scaredy cat. Like, don't get into debt unless you absolutely need to. And and yeah. my my line at that moment was, well, I don't think I can stay in school. I don't think I can even begin school if I don't sign this one paper. And it's to pay for my the rest of the tuition that I couldn't cover. Right. But, you know, trips like I remember I didn't. I wouldn't come to visit uh, my family in Texas from California during the breaks unless it was Christmas because I couldn't afford to. Mm. Um, And man, over Thanksgiving break, uh, campus gets real lonely (laughs) and like things shut down too. So at some point, one of my friends like bought a pizza. We're like, okay, that's what we're going to eat. Yeah, (laughs) And so it, it just, so many little things that you are not prepared for that, you know, um, feel that's what I mean by like you work more. There are more things to figure out when you're, when is your, you're the first one to go off to college, right? Like what you need. I remember at some point my roommate had called me and said, what are you bringing for the room? I was like, what do you mean? What am I bringing for the room? And I'm bringing myself my clothes. <laughs> and she was like, well, I'm calling because I need to know if you're going to bring a microwave. That's what I'm bringing. So what are you contributing? I was like, I don't know how to contribute anything. I'm there to study. <laughs> so there's all these like social cues that felt like that we're just not, uh, you know, that I, w- I was unfamiliar with. And yeah. um you know, and and that I, I learned on, I, I learned about in real time, right? Like the yeah. decision has to be made now. And so how do we continue? Um, so, yeah, yeah, there are some <laughs> challenges. I Yeah, I'm so glad you, you brought this up because, yeah, that's, it's, you're absolutely right. And, uh, yeah, I remember staying home, staying in school one Thanksgiving. Um, and, um, and yeah, it was really lonely cause nobody was on campus. Like it was like, everybody left. Um, and yeah, it was <laughs> really lonely, really sad. And I remember my parents had gone up to like San Antonio to spend Thanksgiving with other family. And so they're calling me and I was kind of sad and yeah. <laughs> down cause I could be there with them. And, um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I would, so somebody listening to this and yeah, and they say, well, see, that's why I don't want my son or daughter to go away. <laughs> yes. Right. Cause, cause their parents are like, I don't want, I, of course, I don't, you know, of I don't course. want Miko to be alone. I don't want Miko ah, to be see, alone. And, see, see. and so, yeah. Do you, do you regret going? Oh away, my God. Leaving? No, no. All of, I mean, I understand. Um, and it was, yeah, you know, there were, there were moments where I was really sad, but, mm-hmm. and, and I was homesick, but what I, the doors that, um, 
experiencing a new state, um, being in that college and just th these new opportunities, the doors that it opened was just incredible. I do remember leaving. My mom was like super worried that I didn't know how to do my laundry. And I was like, I mean, I, I mean, she would do it for us. Right. I was like, but I can do my own laundry <laughs> you know? and I learned and I don't remember messing up anything. Um, I remember we had a kitchen in the dorm where I lived um, and it was a terrible kitchen, but it was a kitchen. And when I would get homesick, I would buy like chorizo at this at the store nearby the campus because it was a predominantly Latino neighborhood. So I love that. Right. Like right outside of campus, it felt like home. Yeah. And I would buy chorizo and I would make like bring it back and make like beans and chorizo for people. And one time <laughs> you get exposed to so many different um, groups, which was the, the biggest adventure of college, right? Is like learning about so many different ways of living, about yeah. so many different um, issues that you had never learned, heard about, and just meeting so many great people. And, and everyone, I mean, just sharing excitement about something you learned in class, that to me was the most exciting thing. Um, but there was a group on campus called No Bull, <laughs> that we're, uh, we're vegan. I mean, and credit to them, right? They were vegan before veganism really became mainstream. And so the the group was like organizing an event with the with the Mecha, which I was part of, right? So the Latino kind of student organization. Um, and we had a joint event and I was like, oh, perfect. I'll make my beans because beans are vegetables. <laughs> like that's not meat. So I made them. And then the the president of No Bull or like one of the members was like, wow, those are really good beans. How did you make them? And I was like, oh, you just put some chorizo in it. And then, and then he was like, oh my What's God. That? <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I am so, so sorry, but I put pork in the refried beans. And he's like, oh, okay. I was like, I'm really, really <laughs> sorry. So it was hilarious. I think luckily, I hope it was soy chorizo because there was soy chorizo in the stores and I didn't know the difference between soy chorizo and regular chorizo. <laughs> but it was, but it was terrible. And his face totally, you know, change color and I was like I I am sincerely really sorry I don't know how to make it for this but next time I won't put the chorizo and the beans so but I learned right yeah like chorizo yeah, does eliminate the vegan part of the beans <laughs> <laughs> yeah chorizo is not definitely not vegan um so so Eddie I I, I love that. And yeah, so much of college and especially for first gen and especially like just being exposed to different cultures. Right. And oh, yeah. And, and it's not like it is like you're naive to a lot of things because you don't know. Right. You've never. Yeah. I remember I, I this is the first time I met a vegetarian wasn't was in college. And I, I so, you know, people would and I remember there was a I had a roommate who told me like he was like oh jay i'm this and this and this this is how i identify and i and i i remember being like okay but i didn't understand like i i didn't know anything about that and i remember like being embarrassed to ask right please like tell me educate me mm -hmm. um because i don't understand right but yeah. but i think that's like that's the one of the wonderful things about college is meeting people that you know just outside of your you know wherever you grew up like especially like for us growing up right along the u.s mexico borders largely mexicano and and so to meet people that you don't meet you know mm -hmm. at, at the border i think is is incredibly enriching eye-opening right right and, yeah and you know so aside from all of those ex exciting like opportunities for growth. I mean, everything, right? If, if it's in the first time that you're going to college, you're going to be constantly growing at home and anywhere else, right? And, and, and part of that is making the most out of it, out of getting what you want out of the experience, right? So mm -hmm. joining clubs, um, you know, 
visiting your professors during class, like after class, during during office hours, um, putting bringing yourself to your assignments. I also did that a lot because why not? Absolutely. <laughs> like, why yeah. why not? Mm write about something I'm interested in. So in psychology, for example, I was a psych major and our professor in in our clinical psychology class asked us to write a research paper about a specific theory of, you know, of a psych, of a therapist or a, a specific therapy uh, approach. And I decided to like write about Gloria Trevi's song lyrics and I like because I love Gloria Trevi, and so I like did a whole analysis breakdown of the song lyrics, and I like compared it, you know, like analyzed the whole experience. I mean, uh, you know, of her career and what it meant and what it did for like Mexican girlhood and Mexican femininity and all this stuff, and he loved it. You know, he was like, oh, that's great. That's, he's like, that's really unique material that I've never seen. And yeah. I was like, cool. You know, but I just thought <laughs> any opportunity, I just felt like, how can I relate this in, in an exciting way? And, and college, I think, created a space where I could do that. Yeah. Where I could explore things that were interesting to me in one way or another. So, um I think that's that's half the fun in college is figuring out, allowing yourself to explore what you're interested in mm-hmm. and just kind of go for it in an assignment, in a research project, in a class, in in extracurricular spaces with with friends. I mean, it's such an exciting time for learning about who you are and what you are interested in in life and where you could go, right? So it's, it was really fun. Yeah, Yael, you, um, I want to backtrack a little bit because you were talking about the your experience meeting with that career advisor, right? And just the, the demoralizing experience It was overall, really right? demoralizing, yeah. And, but yet you persisted and you went to graduate school and then you went to law school. So, you know, I, I think I, I'm sure maybe other students, right, having an experience like that. And who knows? She might have yeah. had she other students might have had a similar experience with this academic advisor or career advisor. Um, yet you pushed forward and so- you continue to go and apply to grad school and law school. Why? In part, um, Jay, goes back to what we discussed last time. We never do anything alone, right? So I had... I had my application ready to go and I to I was applying I was submitting I was planning to submit two applications for a psychology graduate program one to UCLA and then one to NYU and I thought these are the two places that really interest me and I thought, but you know what? I'm going to stop by the career office just in case I have additional tips (laughs) because I don't have research so I need to figure out how to support how to how to amplify my application how to make it better how to improve it and then got this terrible you know result out of it told that it was not good that I shouldn't even apply so I was pretty demoralized and like I said I I put a lot of thought I think in, in into the research that I did and I cultivated relationships with professors um, and I sincerely just wanted to learn more and and learn and, you know, welcome opportunities to talk with professors about the materials that we were reading. Um, so one of those professors uh, invited, uh, was was just a visiting professor on Latin American studies at Occidental at the time that I was uh, graduating. And he had known that I was applying to grad school. I had told him, I, I may have asked him for a letter of recommendation, by the way. Another reason why you need to have good relationships with your professors, why you should go talk to them is because they need to know what to write about when you ask them for a letter of recommendation, right? Like, and your grades are an excellent place to begin, but it's not the totality of what a professor can say about your promise. 
Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, I I remember having a conversation with him in the quad, and I said, um, I you know I just had this terrible experience, and I'm I, I'm not going to submit my application anymore. And the professor said that that's too bad, but he was like, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And I just kind of like left me with that nugget of, of advice. And I knew he was trans- transferring to another school because he was there as a postdoc, uh, a, a, doing a postdoc. So he was leaving to get now a professorship at, a, at Ohio University. And as he was leaving, he learned that they were still accepting applications for students doing Latin American, uh, interested in doing a master's in Latin American studies and international studies. And so over the summer, I honestly thought, well, I, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Um, I don't know. I, I had my eyes set on grad school because I wanted to write about um, immigrant psychology um, and I don't know how how to get there now. And so over the summer, that professor now positioned at Ohio University said, they're still accepting applications. Um, If you submit it, there are scholarships for students as well still available. Just consider it. Mm -hmm. And I would be your advisor in your thesis process. Right. So I did it. That's exactly how I learned about Ohio University's uh, program in, in international studies and Latin American studies. And um, and I went on and again there, I mean, this, this experience follows you everywhere, right? I remember at the first week of orientation, they're like, okay, and to get a master's, you can do a thesis or you can or you can take an exam, a comprehensive exam. Most people don't do their thesis, just go for the comprehensive exam. And I was like, no, I'm here to write. I'm here to write something. Yeah. And I remember the interim director at that time was like, sure, honey, we'll talk later about you writing a <laughs> thesis. I was like, oh, my God, these people have no faith. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, so, but again, I already had that experience where somebody was like, don't do this. You can't do it. Yeah. And, you know, just that experience gets reaffirmed every time. Uh, And I'm sure you might have faced that yourself in graduate school, right? It's like everywhere when it comes to higher education, it feels like the higher you go in degrees, the less access for first generation, low income Mm. students there is the less access there is for students who have less resources. And so, um, you know, it, this, this comes often, it comes up yeah. often, right? And so in, in grad school as well, of course I was like, well, now I'm, of course I'm gonna write a thesis. Like that was the whole reason why I came here. And I don't know why you would ever discourage your own students to not write thesis for your own program, but fine. I was like, I'm gonna write it without you. <laughs> And so, um, again, in grad school, I relied on a community of professors who were just really wonderful and supportive. And um, and it takes time to find the people that can support you. But, you know, it's um, but again, no one ever does anything alone. We we are supported by the knowledge of our community, by their um, their moral, emotional, financial, spiritual, uh, intellectual support. We are always supported. And so it's, um, so I, I hope your, your audience also has had that experience where they relied on their community to get to the next stage. Well, and thank you for sharing that. I think um, just a couple of observations. One is, yeah. I, th- I think that's why more of us should pursue graduate studies, right? Because I think there is this absence. There is um, a need for more of those voices, right? Especially a more diverse group of voices in in um, advanced degrees. Because, you know, those are the folks that are putting out the research, putting out the publications, informing policy. And until you get a diverse group of people who can inform that policy, you don't see policy changes. You don't see calls for, for differences, different types of policy, right? That are much more, I think, encompassing of, of the of the the audience or of the constituents that that you know it, the policy affects. So I appreciate that. I appreciate you, in spite of your experience with that advisor, 
and of moving forward and still going through with it. And so I'm glad that you connected with that professor. Um, yeah. You know, you know, go and, ahead. and to pick up on that too, it was also the supportive community that got me to law school. Right. After graduate school, um, I'd written uh, a thesis that now looking back, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I was so young. I really uh, <laughs> I write better now. <laughs> Everybody says skill. that. Everybody <laughs> says that. Don't worry about it. I, I agree. But, but I did. I, what I loved about grad school is that I towards the end of my college career, I knew I wanted to write about immigrants and their experience in coming to the U.S. and um, and what that means for, you know, a, their sense of self um, and how they identify. So, you know, in, in essence, like I said, I wanted to I didn't understand that at, at the time, but I wanted to understand myself in a way. Right. Which I think is the beauty of academia is that when you are supported by um, a good community of advisors. Um, you are given the space, you are, the space is created for you to be mm-hmm. able to explore the things that take you home um, and that resonate with you that. deeply, right? And so that's what I wanted to do in grad school was um, do research about my community, about what it means for young students um, in, in communities uh, in the Rio Grande Valley to identify how they identify in terms of their immigration status. Um, and so that was a deeply personal uh, research project. And at the end of it, I was like, oh, it feels like I went to therapy and <laughs> got a degree out of it. But it was, it was so formational. It was so foundational. What I yeah. learned there is I have a perspective and I like to um and and it's and my perspective is valuable and my perspective can contribute uh to academic to an academic body and my perspective can be academic right and often i think a lot of times uh first generation students feel out of place in college because we feel like we're not seen mm-hmm. right and so if in grad school i affirmed myself as an intellectual and as a researcher, as an, an individual that even without any degrees uh, still hold value, which are things that we learned back home in yeah. Cauchelsa, right? And so um, it was it was a great experience. I ended up not doing, not using my degree necessarily as a career, but I used the skills that I learned in that graduate degree throughout uh, my life, right? I know how to do research. I know how to do all these things, which is what landed me my job at Rural Strategies. So, so after grad school, I thought, okay, I want to go home. I want to. I want to be in Texas. I ha- I've been away for a while, and I want to um, figure out what's next. I want to take mm-hmm. a break from academia. And in that process is when I started working at the Center for Rural Strategies, and I began to be exposed to internet policy from specifically also a rural lens, right? So what does it mean to have internet access in rural communities? What does it mean to have an internet access in native communities? And quite frankly, I loved the topic. I loved the community of primarily attorneys that were in that space. And at the time there were also a lot of uh, incredible organizers and dear friends that were part of that emerging work back in 2007. And so by chance, just by pure luck, I ended up falling in in an area that was really exciting to me, that spoke to me about media and messaging and internet access and how it it was all connected. And I worked in that, um, I worked for the Center for Rural Strategies for about um, seven years. And then I, f- I did a fellowship at a different organization in DC for an additional, for another year. So I spent about eight years in the world of uh, advocacy on internet access, particularly uh, from the perspective of rural communities. Mm-hmm. And it was in that community that I got to meet a lot of attorneys. But it wasn't until I met 
an attorney in my personal life that I was like, oh, maybe I should go to law school. <laughs> so the whole time, it was quite hilarious. And I think last time I told you that I, I wanted to talk to you about the two years I spent in agony trying to figure out what to do with my life. Yeah. Right. So I'm having this career and, and, and I'm developing a career and a network and doing amazing work and internet policy. And then, but at the same time, I'm like, but I'm supposed to be an immigration scholar and I'm over here doing internet issues and then there's this like conflict internally like what am I supposed to be doing in the world and who am I what do I want right and it was right around I was like 27 28 or something like that and um or maybe 29 I don't remember it was in my <laughs> late 20s it was in my late 20s but uh, and I remember thinking man, I've always had such clarity or felt like I had clarity, but now I don't know exactly what to do. So I started reading a lot. I felt like lost. Like I didn't know what my calling was. I didn't know what my purpose was. And like, ah, in distraught. So I started reading a lot online blogs and like talking to people. How do you find out? What drives you? And all these things. And I remember some in some blog I read that there was a difference between what you felt you should do versus mm -hmm. what you actually wanted to do. And to pay attention to yourself, actually, what do you actually spend your days doing? They're like, that's a good way to begin to assess what you're interested in. And But what was really critical was this distinction between the feeling of I'm supposed to be in this place of my life at this point with this type of career Mm -hmm. And I should be doing this versus what do I want to do? When I started investigating that, I realized that I um, actually really like the world of policy. And at that time, I had also been doing internships because someone told me, go do internships and the things that interest you. Yeah. And I and I thought maybe I should work. I was living in L.A. and I said, maybe I should work in television and I should just decide what's on TV. That way the messaging is just, you know, it's what I take care of. And <laughs> it's really hard to break it into TV. First of all, <laughs> it's yeah. like oh, yeah. super hard. I had no idea. <laughs> and, and when people would ask me like, well, what do you love about television? I was like, I love dramas that expose social issues. <laughs> and they were like, uh, don't you want a comedy? I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> And it was, you know, I, I was actually thinking I should do that rather than what do I do? And when I started reflecting on what I liked, I realized that I really looked up to the lawyers that were around me and I enjoyed the work that they were doing as telecommunication attorneys in uh, in advocating for uh, Internet access for uh, communities that were not connected and that, you know, I when they said, I'm going to write a comment and send it to an agency, I'd be like, oh, we'll write our comments too. I'll write them. Right. So I would just do, I would try to emulate what the lawyers did. And like I said, it wasn't until I actually started dating an attorney that it hit me because I, I met this attorney who's really um, an impressive uh, litigator that was really driven by uh, social justice values. And I thought she was just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, she's so cool. And she does such cool work. And she would talk to me about what law school was like. And I was like, that sounds so cool. How come no one told me that law school was going to be like, no one told me that you could learn that stuff in law school. <laughs> and that's true. No one did tell me up until yeah. that point. Right. So then I realized, wait a minute. I work with a lot of attorneys and I like what they do and I want to be like them. And here it is an attorney in my personal life that I'm like, Oh, you, it sounds like you learned really cool stuff. And that's when it dawned on me, I should go to law school. Why, why didn't I think of that before? Yeah. <laughs> but by then what was, I think a really big difference from what other what I've heard other first-generation law students and attorneys say is that I knew attorneys, and a lot of them, and I had a network with them, but a lot of first-generation attorneys had never actually met an attorney. So they had to figure out this whole other beast of a graduate-level 
uh, grad school journey on their own, right? And it's some, it's like we said before, we should have a separate podcast with all your attorney friends talking about law school admissions because that yeah. is a huge, a huge beast to fight. Um, and there's a total strategy there, but I had access to a lot of attorneys who gave me a number, I mean, just so much advice that I took from everywhere, right? And they were mostly, I, I knew a lot of Latino attorneys, which was very different, a lot of Latina attorneys. Mm -hmm. So it was very different experience, I think that a lot of other first-generation law students have. And I talked to them, I asked their advice, I asked about resources, I asked for moral support um, to my network of, of uh telecommunications attorneys that I knew. I asked for letters of rec. I mean, it was a total community effort, right? To get one little brown girl into law school. And it, it came from everywhere, right? And I only used the communities that were around me because that's, and that's what needed to happen. And, yeah. and even then, I mean, you know, it was, it was a, a huge, huge effort, um, but it, it couldn't have happened without all of the support that I had around me. Um, and that's what I wish was possible for every student because that's what we need. We need a lot of support, everyone. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I think like you, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have gone to grad school without the support of, of my peers and mentors and, and being around people in academia to push me and to guide me and to uh, kind of set me straight about what it is that I wanted to study and, and the work that I wanted to do. And, and, and nobody ever telling me you need to do this, but it was always much more of them asking me questions to kind of help clarify, right? What was it that was important to me? What did I value doing? Um, what kind of yeah. long-term impact was I looking to have? And so, yeah, I, yeah, I, you know, I feel like I see this a lot with my students. My students don't like to ask for help. And, 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 you know, I haven't explored this enough. I, this may be a research project for me down the road to ask students why. And, and so I've asked students sort of informally, like, why don't they go to their professors? Why don't they go to office hours? And, and again, I work with first year students and a lot of them say, well, we don't want to be a bother. We don't want to yeah. you know, bother professors, but it's, yeah. and, and I have to remind myself, nobody's probably told them otherwise. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so I think, I, I think our students need to know, and I, I think um, underrepresented students need to know that you're exactly right. They don't do it alone and they shouldn't do it alone and they shouldn't expect to do it alone. And it is about building that community and that network of support. And that network of support might look like you and it might not look like you, but it is important that you build that community around yourself to help you and, and you know, yeah. to help you along your way. Absolutely. And, you know, as a student who sometimes you don't know what questions to ask, and I mm -hmm. think that's the hardest um, hurdle uh, to overcome, right? You don't know exactly what to ask. Um, but I've definitely, uh, I, I, I personally felt um, at the beginning of, of college uh, journey, um, shame around needing help and feeling like I'm not doing great in a class. Now I have to ask for help or I don't know what this means. So I have to ask someone to help figure, help me figure it out. Right. So there was a, there's, I think, a, I, I'd be curious to hear from your students as well. What are the, what are the things that stop them from mm -hmm. reaching out? And it could be a variety of things, but for me, it felt like, oh man, then people might not know that I really don't know. And then they might think that I shouldn't be here. Um, and I see that that's a huge fear. Um, being an immigrant actually helped me overcome that because there's no way to learn a language without messing it up. There's just no way. You just can't do it. You're going to say something wrong. You're going to sound dumb. You're, you're just, it's 
you're going to say things in the wrong way because that's what learning is. You're going to make mistakes, right? And and especially, I think, for uh, students that feel like they have to be perfect or they have to be great, which is the narrative that we tell students in this college process. Mm-hmm. Right? And in order to be in college, you must be the best. In order to get to grad school, you must be the smartest. In order to go to law school, oh, you're a brilliant genius. Right? Like, tell me, I, I saw so many just mediocre people in law school do just <laughs> fine. <laughs> and trust me, I feel like I was smarter, but I was not doing great so (laughs) it is it is just um there's this narrative i think in in our american culture that if you've made it to the top it must be because there's something special about you that got you there and what's special is the whole community and resources that you've had around you right that's why Earlier, I wanted to make sure that your audience understood that it's not about you being super special. It's about who's helped you along the way. And when we start peeling that back, then hopefully the shame goes away. So that way, when we start sharing candidly with students, um, I needed help. And that's because we all need help. It's just that it's not discussed in that way all the time, right? So um, hopefully your audience and and college students listening or college hopeful students listening feel more comfortable asking for support in whichever way they need it to get to where they need to be. Um, And and, and it just, it's, it's hard. It's hard, but you're not... We're not going to get there until we address, right, that there, there are some things we don't know, and that's okay. Yeah. And that we'll make mistakes, and that's okay. Our life, your life is not over if you didn't get into the college that you wanted. Actually, your life is just taking a different path, which is mm-hmm. exactly what it does. Like, it is, there's just, there's so many inf- infinite possibilities to life, and um, every, you know, new opportunity and new mistake is a new opportunity. Actually, I like um, a phrase from one of my TV shows. I thought that was, that's the right way to do it. There's a show called The Good Place. And there's uh, one of the characters is this guy that's depicted as to be like kind of silly, like not serious. And he only cares about dancing with his dance crew. And they asked him, man, your dance crew never succeeded. And he's like, no, we are pre-success. And I thought that is brilliant. That is brilliant. Instead of thinking about like, I'm a failure. He's like, no, I'm pre-success. I'm in the way to success. I just haven't gotten there yet. And I thought, that's awesome. That's how I feel. (laughs) Well, so yeah, you know, I want to be mindful of our time again, but I think that's a really good segue because you said, you know, you talk about pre-success and you said, that's how I feel. Yael, have you stopped to look back on your life? Because I mean, I mean, think about it. Like, look, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think you're way past pre-success, my friend. <laughs> you immigrate to the United States at 12 years old. Immigrate to Ed Chelsea. You... Um, you're undocumented. You find community at your, at your high school. You go and speak in front of the Texas legislature to improve the situation and create opportunities for students like you. And then you go to Occidental University and you go to Ohio University and you go to law school and you work for the Biden administration. <laughs> like, my friend, you are way past pre-success. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, you've done really well for yourself. And I'm going to ask you, because I, I know we can keep going. Yeah, but I'm going to ask. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, no, no, no. Don't apologize. Please don't apologize. <laughs> we started this conversation with you apologizing because you're running late. Please don't apologize. <laughs> you are. You have nothing to apologize for. But I want to ask you, 
if if we had to go back and and I think I think we can both agree a big part of your success has been your community right because that that's kind of like the thread that's been woven through your story if you had to put your finger on something else what else what else has helped you find success i would say two I would say three things. Okay. Um, first, I think I've always been a very curious person, curious about uh, the world and and how things work, and just to know, just curious about life and how things grow. I mean, anything, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I, I'm a curious person and I'm excited to learn and to discover things I didn't know. So that's, that's one. And I feel like that curiosity has served me into diving into new topics or diving into new opportunities and just being open to the possibilities. Um, Second, I, I think, and second breaks into two things. The second one is my experience as an immigrant um, and being an, uh, you know, a, a naturalized citizen uh, was profoundly uh, forming in my sense of self and my, uh, and, and the, of responsibility and duty I feel to my community and to my country now, the U.S., right? Um, I think that when I first immigrated, I, it was, it was a, probably the hardest thing I've ever done was to be a 12th grader learning English in junior high. <laughs> it was hard. It was so hard emotionally, intellectually, um, you know, it was, it was difficult to try to navigate a whole new world and to be the one, like you said, with your, in, in your family that had the most understanding of how things were unfolding before us. So that experience um, taught me and showed me that I was actually um, really resilient and that I could learn new big things. And so that's why I think that's why I like the idea of being pre-success. If you're pre-success, you're not there yet, right? You're constantly learning. Any failure becomes an opportunity for growth. Um, and that's what learning English and being an immigrant taught me. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to say, I'm going to pronounce beach in a different way than everybody else does. And I have to add an S in the middle of it so that it sounds appropriate. And <laughs> I am, and I have to be okay with that. I have to be okay with not getting things right the first time, yeah. but I have to overcome or not even overcome. I have to embrace my fear of failing at something so that I can get better at it. And I actually think that that has been a life skill that's really, really served me, especially in graduate, in, in a higher education, in graduate level, in law school. There were hard things, right? I still didn't feel great that I wasn't doing fantastic at things, but I knew that I had to keep going because I would get better at them. Um, and, and, and like I said, the other thing that being an immigrant gave me is that I learned that I'm in community. When you're an immigrant, you absolutely, and sadly, some, um, some of us, right, uh, folk who are refugees, folk who um, are first generation and have no other family, you, you can definitely be pretty alone. And it can be a really isolating experience. And hopefully, like me, people find community and co or community finds them. Because actually, it wasn't that I was looking for community. is that 
Edgar Chelsea High School had a community for me. I love that. And so I get emotional about it because that's where I first felt plugged in to this country. And it's absolutely what drives my commitment and what I love to do as a professional. And, and it's that sense of, of community, I think, that has helped me get to this level of success, right? Um, because I work in rural development. I work on broadband uh, opportunities for rural and tribal communities because the reality is that I want them to be connected and in community with each other from their own homelands and um, and feel connected to everyone um, the way that we all feel, right? So I, I think that sense of community that I found in, in back home and that is with you has served me really well and and I'm just really glad to get the opportunity to do this professionally. So. Adiel, thank you so much, so much for sharing your story. And, um, and just being so honest and open with the audience, um, because I, I, I think, I think people need to hear that. I think people needed to hear your story and, 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 I appreciate that you were really honest about your struggles and your challenges and, and what you learned along the way. And, um, and so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, if you are at um, pre-success, I look forward to, <laughs> I look forward to what the future holds for you, my friend, because, because I knew, I knew when I met you in high school, there was something about you you were just really impressive, really sharp, curious. Yes, I remember you always asking questions. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm not surprised um, that you are where you're at. But I'm greatly appreciative that you haven't forgotten who you are and where you've come from and the community that, that supported you and, and helped you along the way. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this concludes another amazing episode <laughs> of the Way to College podcast. I'm Dr. Jose Saldivar uh, signing off. You know, please check out you know other episodes and make sure you subscribe and follow the show. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.